Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Hello and welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcasts, where we bring to the community, both Park Avenue and well beyond, conversations from within the community, beyond the community that are relevant to the Jewish community. And it is a great pleasure to welcome this week um, Professor Shaul Magid, who is a dear friend and one of the finest human beings and scholars of the Jewish community, past, present, and future around, not just that I know, but that I've ever known. And it is a delight to welcome you here to talk about your book, Mayor Kahane, The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical, um, but also I'm sure far more than that. Professor Magid is Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College. He is a Kogod Senior Research Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. He was recently appointed Senior Fellow for the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard. And he is the author of many, many books on Hasidism, on Midrash, on American Jewish identity and post-ethnic identity. Uh, and he has the coolest summer pulpit that I know of, the rabbi of the Fire Island community. Um, Shaul, Professor Magid, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm intrigued because the, the, the book has been out since October 12, 2021. Uh, Mazel Tov on the publication, The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical, Mayor Kahane. To have you here is prompted somewhat by the news that is going on in Israel at this time as we're seeing uh, the rise of a new government, many of whose ideologues can find their pedigree in the thought of Mayor Kahane. However, before we get into the book, and otherwise, I'm just curious how this book came about and what prompted you. You've written on Hasidism, you've written on um, uh, American Jewish, you've, you've written on a lot, Spinoza, I've, I've read your stuff. Um, how, how did this book come about? The book, thank you, thank you for having me. The book, um, the book came about because in American Post Judaism, which I published in 2015, I had a chapter on the Holocaust, which was the last chapter in the book, and I decided I wanted to address some of the um, some uh, American Jewish figures who are not usually the ones that are addressed when thinking about the Holocaust, and Mayor Kahana came to mind. Um, his book, Never Again, that was published in 1971. Of course, the title itself is, is, is um, you know, implicates the Holocaust in a way. And when I started to, uh, when I started to look at, at some of his writing, which I had never really looked at before, I, I really became intrigued. And then I, I published the book, 
And I had a, a, a graduate student when I was teaching at Indiana, was evangelical Christian from California, who, uh, who decided that he wanted to write an MA thesis on Mayor Kahana and the concept of history, largely from reading the chapter in my book. So I said, well, the best way to do it is to begin to read his work. So we had a chavruta for about two years where we started reading Kahana's writings chronologically from his first essay that was published in 1959 all the way through, uh, I wouldn't say through his death, but certainly through the 1980s. And, and once I started doing that and really, and he, and he wrote a fabulous MA thesis, by the way. But once It I, sounds like the beginning of a joke. A Jewish studies professor, a Christian evangelical, right. are reading the writings of Mayor Kahana. Right. And, 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 and this graduate student is now finishing his doctorate at Emory University working on Yiddish literature. So it's a kind of interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting story, right? Only in, it's a kind of an only in America story. Uh, in any event, once I started doing this, I started realizing that there is something really deeply, um, uh, to my mind, interesting, but also important in terms of Mayor Kahana as an American Jewish figure. And yet, if you look around at syllabi um, on American Judaism or Jewish history, he's almost always absent. It seems like he was kind of written out, intentionally written out of the American Jewish story. And I think I thought that, that that was a mistake. And so I decided to write this book to really situate him as a quintessentially American Jewish thinker. Of course, people mostly know about Meir Kahana when they think about Israel, because he moves to Israel in 1971 and he founds a political party. And then the political party is considered a racist party and he's removed from the Knesset. And he becomes a kind of persona non grata in a certain way and yet continues um, his project, his political project, and then, and then he's assassinated um, in New York City. This is, you know, a few years after he is removed from the Knesset. And to somewhat of a surprise, I think, his funeral was, at that time, the largest funeral in the history of, of Israel. I mean, I think there have been others that have been larger subsequent to that. So here's a person who was re who was rejected by the Israeli political establishment, who was a kind of persona non grata in American Jewry. He's kind of erased from, you know, the American Jewish story. And yet his funeral is one of the is the largest funeral to date um, in Israel. So. He's a figure that is, in a certain way, um, the dark side of the American Jewish psyche on some level. Uh, and so I, go ahead. I want to come back to that. But for those who might not be familiar just with Mayor Kahana, in the sense that ideology is a recapitulation of biography, what were the forces that gave rise or a bit of a biographical sketch um, that this um, that gave rise to him and his ideology for well, those who might not know. So he's, he's, you know, born in America in Brooklyn uh, to a, I guess what we would call today, modern Orthodox family. Um, interestingly, he doesn't, his family has no history with the Holocaust. The Kahana family had either moved to America or to mandate Palestine and Israel before the Shoah. So even though the Holocaust obviously is a is a is a dark shadow or over his thinking. It's not something that there that there's personal relationship with. Um, 
One of the, uh, his father was a, a revisionist Zionist, a follower of Zeb Jabotinsky, who was a kind of right-wing reactionary secular Zionist, although his father was a rabbi uh, in a synagogue. And uh, there's a family lore that Kahana's, um, uh, his uncle, his father's brother, if I'm not mistaken, was killed in the in Sfat in the Arab riots in 1929. And this becomes a very, very strong part of the Kahana identity. And in a certain sense, his whole public persona is driven, at least in part, by that notion of, of, of the family being the victim of, uh, of Arab hatred in, in Palestine. Uh, his father was a Zionist, uh, obviously a follower of Jabotinsky. Um, and Kahana was a Zionist in a world where most of the Orthodox community, at the, which many of whom were uh, Holocaust refugees, were not Zionists. I mean, Kahana studied in the Mir Yeshiva in Brooklyn, which is a kind of um, uh, a, a, a kind of Lithuanian um, yeshiva that was made up mostly of, um, at that time, survivors. And he tells a story that he was made fun of in yeshiva because he was a Zionist. That was something that was just completely to most of that world. So he has a very strong Zionist sense. Now, the other piece of it is that he comes into his own in the 1960s amid the culture and race wars of the late 1960s, and particularly the uh, the anti-Semitism within the African-American community that came to the surface during the 1968 Ocean Hill-Brownsville school strike. Anyone anyone that's th that was alive at that time who lives in the kind of metropolitan area will remember the 1968 Ocean Hill-Brownsville school strike. It brought the entire New York City school system to a screeching halt. Mayor Lindsay uh, got involved. And there were a lot of African-American parents who came out strongly against Albert Shanker, who was then the leader of the teachers union, who was Jewish. And there was a lot of anti-Semitism that really came out around the school strike. Kahana founds the Jewish Defense League in May 1968, in part as a response to the anti-Semitism within the African-American community. And then, you know, he becomes very much a political player. The, the Jewish Defense League becomes very, very popular. You know, um, uh, chapters are opened up in major American cities. And he, he, was the, he was the subject of an Esquire magazine feature story. He had an interview in Playboy magazine in 1972. I mean, he really became quite an important voice although for many in the American Jewish community, an embarrassing one, um, which in some sense has kind of remained underground, which is why he was somewhat written out of the story and then, and then comes back into the fore, I think, uh, in, our, in our time. I mean, I did not think when I started writing this book that it was going to be as relevant as it turns out to be. So that was just serendipity on my part. Right. Well, be, well, I mean, let's get into it, yeah. because from his death to uh, graffiti written on the walls in Israel, if you've been to Israel and seen it, that it says Kahana Sadat, that Kahana was right, right? So this ideologue of, of, that was sort of ultra-nationalist, xenophobic, violent, um, that was outlawed by the Knesset. Um, I somewhere right in the mid eighties, yeah, and then um, uh, has subsequently given rise 
um, to individuals, and I'm thinking of the news specifically today, of Itmar Ben-Gavir and Otsma Yehudit, though I know it's beyond just any one personality, um, that has not only found a following, but has somehow been, and not only been sanitized, um, but has found, in, in the case of Otsma Yehudit, six seats in the Knesset, and, um, and given a Ministry of Security. Uh, I mean, this is, I don't know when this podcast will air, but it, this, is, this is real news right now. And so this, um, I guess it's not so much the life of Mayor Kahane, but the afterlife of Mayor Kahane. How, how did this transformation happen or this ripple effect from his death to today happen? That's a great question. I think that it, 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 um, Kahana never disappeared from the Israeli, uh, the Israeli, Israeli society. In a certain sense, he went underground. But more interesting is the, the merging of Kahana and the, uh, Zionist ideology of Rev Cook. And by Rev Cook, I mean Rev Abraham Isaac Cook, who was the first Chief Rabbi of Mandate Palestine, who dies in 1935, and then Svi Cook, his son, who becomes the leader of the settler movement. There's a kind of coming together of a particular kind of religious Zionist ideology and a reactionary, militaristic, uh, and chauvinistic Zionism that we see in Meir Kahana. And I think what we're witnessing now is what I call in the book neo-Kahanism. It's really the coming together of a uh, of a romantic, ideological, messianic, nationalist, religious, religious nationalist movement, and a, um, a a Zionism of conquest and power that has really given birth to uh, what we're witnessing now. But I will say that this has been happening for the last 40 years, largely under the radar screen of many American Jews. The settler movement is not something that's new. Obviously, Gush Emunim is founded after the Yom Kippur War in 1974. Um, in 1977, when Begin is elected, settlements becomes part, settlement becomes part of Israeli national policy. And even when the government went to labor, whether it was with Rabin or whether it was Omer or others, settlement policy never disappeared. It only accelerated. And it's produced an entire subculture, which maybe now is not even a subculture, has become the culture of Israeli society, which is uh, basically um, against any compromise with the Arab population. Uh, whether it's a culture or not, it's the representative uh, Knesset, you know, coalition. Right. right. Well, that's what we're, what's new. I think now is the way it's be, it's it's kind of e erupted as a political force in uh, in in the Israeli Knesset. And we have to remember until nineteen ninety until nineteen seventy seven, every Israeli parliament was a labor coalition. It's only with Begin that we have the beginning of the Likud party, which was a more right-wing party, and it's gone back and forth from labor to Likud over the course of years, but I still think the, 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 the Begin ideology really remained very much a part of Israeli political culture. Now what we're seeing is really the empowerment of a much more forceful 
religious nationalist culture that has existed for 40 years and now is able to kind of exercise political power, in large part because Ben Gvir really presents himself as a um, a homegrown, you know, Israeli, you know, Israeli next door um, who, you know, speaks the language. Remember, Kahana was always an immigrant to Israel. He never really fit in. He spoke Hebrew with an American accent. He was thinking in American cultural and political categories. Whereas Ben Gavir, you know, Tomer Persico wrote a nice piece in Haaretz called Ben Gavir Kahana Lakola Mishpacha. Ben Gavir is like Kahana for the entire family, right? It's kind of normalized. It's normalized the the ideology, and there's there's really a very important difference I I want to I want to stress between Kahana and Ben Gvir. Kahana was a revolutionary. He really wanted to overthrow the state. He didn't believe in democracy. He didn't believe I shouldn't say that he didn't believe that Israel can be a democracy. He didn't believe that Israel can be in a, a Jewish and democratic state. And ultimately, he was playing a zero sum game. Ben Gavir is not a revolutionary. Ben Gavir wants to transform Israeli society from the inside. And in some way, he's been very successful in doing so. And the interesting thing about Ben Gavir's constituency, he's not, is not only getting votes from Jews that are living in the settlements, he's getting votes of secular Israelis from Tel Aviv, he's getting votes from Haredi, young Haredim who are becoming part of the political culture. In other words, his, his support is much broader than what we would think. And I think that's one of the more disturbing things that that we, looking at the situation from America, uh, have to come to terms with, which is that um, not only politically, but also culturally, Israel is now pretty much an illiberal society. Liberalism, which was the, the basis of, uh, of a particular Zionist vision, certainly among American Jews, that begins perhaps maybe back in 1916 with Louis Brandeis. That's not the Israel that exists anymore. And I think American Jews have to kind of come to terms with that. So, which actually gets me into, uh, you know, I know this might be widening the lens too, too much, but when I was looking at the Mayor Kahana book and the, the figure of it, I see it as a reaction, you know, to your book on... Um, American post-Judaism identity and renewal and post-ethnic society, because if the proposition of that opening chapter, which I, I love teaching to my students at JTS, about that Jewish identity has become more malleable, more porous, a Jewish identity of, of consent as opposed to dissent, right? All of the, the um, sort of elements that make up a modern Jewish identity that one can live a secular, hyphenated Jewish American, American Jewish identity. Kahana is here to say that's nonsense. And, you know, that there is only um, one way um, for Jews to um, live, and that is as proud, you know, non-apologetic, in nationalists, you know, on the Israeli uh, terms, um, you know, it, it's it, with inflections, as you note, of Jabotinsky, of, of, of revisionist Zionism and otherwise, that these are sort of two ways to look at the project of what it means to be a Jew today. Are we shields up and the anti-Semites are out to get us? And so we have to take matters into our own hands and be nationalist Zionists. Or 
do we hold on to this dream, whether it's Brandeis or otherwise, of some sort of, you know, the, the best American is an American who supports, who's proudly secular and proudly Jewish. Or, or who believes that there is somehow a possible symmetry between one's liberal, one's commitment to liberal values and one's support of a particular kind of national Jewish project. Um, I think one of the, th I agree with you, I think one of the things that I would say, and I'm sure there would be people that will disagree, um, I I don't think that Kahana was an aberration. I don't think that Ben Gvir, the Ben Gvir and the, the Israeli government now is an aberration. I think that these ideas always existed among modern American Jews. I think the notion of the dangers of liberalism and the threat of assimilation and the kind of perennial threat of anti-Semitism and how to react, they always existed. I think that, you know, Kahana is, or I think Ben Gvir in some way is a kind of Freudian return of the oppressed, uh, of the repressed, that we kind of, we put Kahana down in a closet and we shut the door and we threw away the key and we're saying, thank God we're done with that. I think that was a terrible mistake for American Jews to make and for Israeli Jews to make too, because he didn't disappear. Because what he represented was nothing new. What he represented was a particular iteration of a Jewish reaction to questions of survivalism. And ultimately, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, Kahana was a survivalist. He was a Jewish right. survivalist. And that fear of... Um, of the, the 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 erasure or disappearance of the Jew, either through anti-Semitism or through assimilation, that was always the fear that 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 existed um, among Jews and American Jews in particular, because they were living in a liberal society. And I think that we fooled ourselves to think that somehow there was an easy coming together of. Uh, of, of Jewish identity and liberalism. And Kahana was the one that said, no, 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 no. The thing that's going to kill the Jews is not the anti-Semites. The thing that's going to kill the Jews is liberalism. Yeah. yeah. And that, I think, is also something that is becoming very much a part of Israeli political culture, too. If you listen, forgetting about listening to the things that some of these people are saying about the Arabs or saying about other things, listen to what they're saying about liberalism. Right. Right. That's become the enemy in Israel. And that was what Kahana said. Kahana would say that what will destroy Zionism is liberalism. Right, look, I, I think uh, this might, it's a thought, it's not a necessarily deep thought, but I think this is happening right now in the American Jewish scene. We're, we're recording this in December of 2022, that um, for the last month, um, as all the events in Israel have been unfolding regarding the election, what's everyone been talking about here in America? Kanye and Kyrie Irving. Right. Meaning, um, right now is a moment where all of the forces, and, and, and importantly so, to fight the scourge online and rocks thrown through synagogue windows regarding anti-Semitism, right? So we are in a shields up moment as an American Jewry this fall. Right. And in all the implications, advocacy, philanthropy, politically, otherwise, because the anti-Semites are coming out to get us. That's the narrative. Right. Um, and the lived reality in many um, settings. And yet, 
what's going on in Israel is going on as well. And American Jewry is caught betwixt and between as to whether or not the anti-Semites are out to get us. And therefore, you know, is Israel getting a pass right now? Um, or, or more, my thought is right now, American Jewry is frozen in the headlights. Um, we don't know how to respond. I as think, liberal Zionists. Yes, I think that I, I do want to address that last thing that you said, but but I want to say something and say it with all of the caveats that, that I can muster. But this was true from Herzl with a famous entry that he wrote in his diary to the present, and that um and again I say this I say this uh cautiously, um anti-Semitism has always been good for the Zionist project. Because it really is an affirmation that life in the diaspora is um, precarious. I mean, to, in a diary entry, Herzl actually wrote that anti, anti we can use anti-Semitism for our own for our purposes. So, in some way, the more that there the, the more that there is a focus on anti-Semitism in America, and there's reason for there to be a focus for sure. The stronger the case is made for the Zionist project and even for the Zionist reactionary project. And so in a certain sense, you're right that American Jews are not don't know really what to say. There is a deer in the headlights moment about this government, certainly among the liberal Zionists. Uh, but on the other hand, the you know, when Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL says anti-Semitism is anti, I'm sorry, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, full stop, in a certain sense, he's basically feeding the particular nationalist narrative that, right, the only place for a Jew to be safe is, is Israel. Now, interestingly, I don't think we've seen yet a marked increase in American Jews making Aliyah, which is kind of interesting, right? So in a sense, we 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 may agree with that assessment, but yet we still remain very very invested um, in America. On the last point, I think I think that li this is an inflection point for liberal Zionists. I think that liberal Zionists are going to have to make somewhat of a decision, and that decision is: Can I, as a liberal, support an illiberal state? Now, I don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. I mean, it could change. History doesn't work, doesn't go only in one direction, but that's where we are now. And um, some people will say my liberalism trumps my Zionism. And some people say my, my Zionism trumps my liberalism. And other people will say, well, we just have to keep fighting for the kind of Zionism that we believe in that we grew up with. Those are th the three options. I don't see that the third option is really that constructive i just i think that israel as a democratic society can i, can I push you on that because yeah. why okay so i love israel but i don't love the government of israel like let's take that as a as a possible thesis and an american liberal zionist could take so why i mean there might be a an american administration that i not you know particular for but my advocacy against that administration or other ideas doesn't make me less of a patriot. It actually makes me more American. Uh, so um, I wouldn't. So with this third category of I love Israel, but 
Um, and therefore I fight for an Israel that I believe in. I think I hear you. I think the different people often make that equation between America and Israel. I think there, there is a bit of a difference because America has we elected Donald Trump. America has, uh, you know, administrations that many liberals feel very um, uh, opposed to. But America is still pretty much a 49, 51 percent country. It's still really a divided country. I think what we saw in this last election is Israel is not a divided country at this point. It's, you know, over 60% of Israelis polled, religious and non-religious, consider themselves right-wing. 60%, over 60%. So I think that, I don't think that the equation is really the same. And I think you could see, you could see the differences in the last midterm election in America and the election we just had in Georgia. In other words, there is a pushback, there is a resistance. Interestingly, in the midterm elections, the, the, the electoral constituency that really pulled America back from the precipice of a certain kind of right-wing government were 18 to 28-year-olds. Whereas in Israel, that same group are the ones that gave us the government that we have now. So the youth is working in opposite directions in a certain sense. So the liberal Zionism is really, on some level, a kind of um, boomer Zionism. Right. Many of those that identify liberal Zionists are really boomer or millennials. The younger, the younger people don't feel that way. Uh, for the, not obviously, this is not true across the board. We're talking about in general terms. So I, I think that um, the problem that I have with the well, we can still fight for the Israel that we want, and also recognize the Israel that is, and not be blind to that. So. I, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not opposed to that, but but I think that it's like talking about a two-state solution. At some point, we have to think beyond that when that becomes, you know, more of a, more fantastical than a one-state solution. And they're both fantastical, right? There's no one-state solution. There's no two-state solution. What there is is Israel as we have it today. And the final thing I would say that I understand to say I love Israel, but I don't like the government. Um. I don't really think it's only about the government. I think it's about it's about the rise of a particular kind of religiosity in Israel. I think it's the uh, attempt to disqualify non-orthodox Judaisms from functioning in Israel. I think it's 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 really a rejection of diaspora Jewry on some level, yeah. right? And so that that's 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 a serious concern. Fair enough, and it's why we're going to have to have another podcast on on this, but not today. <laughs> um, but uh, Shaul, Professor Magid, can you just tell us you've gone from Hasidism to American post-Judaism, Mayor Kahani, what's the next project? Are you at liberty to share? I can. I have two projects that I'm working on. Uh, one of them is, well, a number of them, but one of them is a book that's coming out in the late spring, early summer called The Necessity of Exile, Essays from a Distance. And it's really about the concept of exile and what is given up when we 
when we when we try to erase the notion of exile when Zionism makes the claim that exile is over. And there was obviously a deal that was made in 1942 at the Biltmore Conference and the Biltmore Hotel between uh, American Zionists and David Ben-Gurion to say, American Zionists says, we're willing to tie our wagon to your state of Zionism, but we don't want to be called living in Galut. In exile, we want to be called living in Gola in diaspora. And I'm basically, this book is basically investigating or interrogating what we lose when we give up the concept of exile. And the second thing I'm working on, which is a longer project called Judeo-Pessimism, which is about thinking about contemporary Jewish writing on anti-Semitism through the lens of critical race theory. Um, wow. So those are the two things that, uh, you know, keep me off the streets. Well, may you continue to write, may you continue to be productive, and may you continue to provoke thought as you have done so today. I wish you every success in all your endeavors. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, Professor Shaul Magid. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah.